Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 89, Spacecraft. Spacecraft that fly people in space generally look nothing like they do in the movies. And there are reasons for that. For safety and practicality, the insides will look more like a submarine with lots of small rooms and sealable hatches, while the outsides will have lots of solar panels and radiators sticking out at all angles. And that's just for starters. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how would you design a spacecraft? Here at Cheap Astronomy, we'd use recycled materials, outsourced labour and lots of cut corners. Seriously though, if we're talking about a crewed spacecraft, one of the first things to think about is gravity. Most science fiction spacecraft have approximately 1g of gravity in all their crewed areas, which is rarely explained. Discovery 1 from 2001 A Space Odyssey had a rotating crewed compartment, as did the Hermes in The Martian. This may be the best solution, although a cheaper solution would be to have an onboard centrifuge that you could just hop into for a couple of hours a day, watching movies or something, while the centrifuge readjusts the distribution of body fluids, as well as toning your muscles and skeleton. Whatever method you go with, it would still make sense to build your spacecraft with its cabin floors orientated perpendicular to the spaceship's main direction of travel, so any acceleration it undergoes generates some useful artificial gravity rather than pressing the crew up against a wall. Another thing about science fiction spacecraft is that they're pressurised from nose to tail, so humans can access every part of the ship. In reality, to minimise the risk of decompression and also to minimise mass, the only pressurised crude areas in the ship would be a small number of cabins with sealable doors. Maintaining those pressurised areas needs pumps and filters, which add mass, and the gas itself has mass. So you wouldn't bother with a pressurised hangar bay or pressurised Jeffrey tubes to access other parts of the ship. If there's maintenance required, you either put on a spacesuit or you send a robot. Indeed, part of any good spacecraft design will be good robots. They could be telepresence units, which you would drive from a distance with a headset and hand controls, or they could be autonomous robots that just do standard tasks, or they could be both. Most science fiction spacecraft also manoeuvre implausibly in a vacuum. If you just have one main drive engine at the rear of your spacecraft, it's a bit unclear what controls pilots could be fiddling with to manage all those sharp turns and loop-the-loops you see in the movies. In reality, you'll need lateral thrusters, probably in the nose of your craft, to balance the work of the main engine at the rear a bit like the space shuttle orbiters. But the aerodynamic form of space shuttle orbiters, with delta wings and a vertical tail fin, are completely pointless features in a vacuum. They're just there so the orbiter can land aerodynamically back on Earth. 
If a spacecraft is built just for deep space travel, streamlining is unnecessary, although the spacecraft would probably still be long and thin to maximise the distance between the crude section at the front and the main drive at the back, which would be generating a lot of heat and probably radiation. The structural framework of the spacecraft would need to be both strong and flexible to manage the forces of acceleration as well as temperature changes that occur when flying within stellar systems. Beyond all that, you might think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. So if you want to get anywhere, you need speed and lots of it. So you need to minimise mass and maximise your ability to increase speed, or in rocket terminology, your delta V. If we assume warp drive and hyperspace are out of the question, and yes, they are out of the question, then you'll have to fly through real space. If you had a main engine that could maintain a constant 1G of acceleration, that would be great for generating artificial gravity in the ship, and with that kind of acceleration, you could theoretically get from Earth to Mars in a bit over a day. And if you kept going, you would start approaching light speed in about a year, but at that speed you'd also risk destroying your ship through just colliding with a dust grain. But if we did have an imaginary drive system that could generate a sustained 1G of acceleration, the good ship Cheap Astro would accelerate up to a speed that was as fast as was safe, and then switch the engines off to just coast at that speed constantly, until, as the destination approached, the ship would be turned around, once again firing up its main engine to decelerate. So there'd be periods of artificial gravity each side of the trip, and during the cruise phase, you would either rotate the cabins or use those personal centrifuges. Piece of cake, really. This is the middle bit. So, it's a shame that this podcast doesn't have access to a multi-billion dollar budget, along with an expert workforce and high-tech manufacturing facilities, but them's the brakes. For now, people who do have access to those things are following a tried and tested method that may not last much longer. Dear Cheap Astronomy, A spacecraft that you launch all at once, now old technology. This is really a question about whether NASA's Apollo mission concept of launching everything in one go is the way of the future, or will we move to an approach where you launch components and then assemble them in orbit? And maybe then you fly to your destination where various pre-launched modules are already there waiting for you, like, say, some spare fuel and a lander to take you down to the planet's surface. The idea of a modular spacecraft built up from separately launched components does sound compelling, if not inevitable, but at the same time we should acknowledge it's not something we've done yet. The Apollo mission's launch-everything-in-one-go approach was very successful and did involve a degree of component assembly where the command and service modules detached from the third stage of the Saturn V then turned around to dock with the lunar module that was housed in the upper section of that third stage. 
hence creating a whole new spacecraft that then flew onto the moon. Probably the best-known example of a modular spacecraft that's been assembled from components launched on different launch vehicles is the International Space Station, although it will never leave Earth orbit. So, all we can really say at this point is that it seems like a great idea to assemble purpose-built deep space vehicles from separately launched component parts. It does seem likely that whatever spacecraft does eventually fly people to Mars will be such a modular, assembled vehicle, if only because of the mass we anticipate that vehicle will need, which is just too much to be lifted in one single launch from Earth. And as well as flying to Mars in a modular deep space vehicle, we may then dock with a Mars way station before transferring over to a Mars lander. But again, while it all sounds like a great idea, we've never actually done it. NASA's current solution to landing robots on Mars is to use aerobraking, where the vehicle pretty much flies at full speed into Mars's atmosphere and uses the atmosphere to slow down, hence saving on the fuel that would otherwise be burnt by retro rockets. But if instead you adopt the approach of flying to Mars with the aim of docking with something in orbit, then you'll need extra fuel to slow down and manage an orbital insertion, and you'll need even more fuel to do all the fine manoeuvring required to dock with another orbiting vehicle. All this may be possible, but to manage remote docking with up to a 24-minute radio delay with Earth means it either has to be done by some kind of sophisticated artificial intelligence we just haven't invented yet, or it has to be managed by a human crew. So if we want to fly to Mars in the next few years, using a plan that involves docking with something already in Mars orbit, we have no choice but to send a human crew, including on the first test flight. Beyond that... Once a crewed mission has landed on Mars, pretty much the only plan we have for them is that they will launch again for their return to Earth using locally sourced fuel. SpaceX is running with this plan for its Starship Super Heavy Lift vehicle, of which prototypes are still exploding in 2021. Of course, that's how you build a new Starship, by learning through failure and explosions. But when you have exploding prototypes in 2021, and the plan is to fly an uncrewed test mission to Mars in 2024, followed by a crewed mission in 2026, it all starts sounding a bit ambitious. As far as locally sourced fuel goes, it's certainly feasible to produce oxygen from the CO2 atmosphere, but the other required fuel component will be methane, CH4, which will need water as a hydrogen source, where the plan is to extract that water from large subsurface deposits. Again, this is feasible, but at this time, we don't know where such large subsurface deposits are, we just think they exist. And it's also in the plan that the first large-scale Mars fuel plant will be sent ahead and landed in parts, so that the first crew or crews have to then construct the fuel plant and also make it work so that they can get home again. And 
No one is arguing that it is all feasible, at least on paper. But in 2026, come on. This is the end bit. So, there you go. We've already thought of a way to build the next generation of spacecraft, although no one's actually done it yet. NASA's Artemis missions may represent a step forward, since they plan to dock with a lunar lander that's been launched separately and placed remotely into lunar orbit. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just have some new ideas for remote docking procedures, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll put it all together for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.